Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tigg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or a clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that Rare and Associated Communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. Hi, Sam. How are you this morning? Hey, Kimberly. I am really good. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm really excited to have you as our first guest. We've been talking for a couple of years now, and you've been so active in Dazzle Frere, and so much has gone on. So it's really great to have you back today to talk more about Poland Syndrome Support and Network, as well as uh, some things that you've been working on, specifically the registry. So would you give folks just a bit of an overview of your organization and also a little bit about what Poland Syndrome is? Thank you for doing the podcast, and obviously you Dazzle Frere as well, and this opportunity to be first on the podcast is amazing. So thank you for that privilege. It's an honor. So yeah, I'm Sam Fillingham. I'm CEO of PIP UK, the Poland Syndrome Support and Network Charity. Um, So we're a charity that supports families affected by a rare limb difference, a congenital anomaly called Poland Syndrome. The main symptoms of Poland Syndrome are a missing and underdeveloped chest muscles, chest bones, general underdevelopment in the chest area, and also underdevelopment in the hands and fingers are the main symptoms. Um, as it's a syndrome, it's a spectrum um, of effects and symptoms, but those are the main ones um, that people are affected by. The more severe cases can include differences in the development of the ribs and the organs as well. Do we know approximately what the prevalence is of Poland syndrome in the UK? So it has a really wide-ranging pieces of data on that, as in many rare disease cases, because we don't have enough data. So the prevalence is between every one in 30,000 births to every one in 100,000 births. Wow! That is pretty rare for, for a lot of conditions. With rare disease, it is also like a spectrum. You You have some that are technically rare in the population, but that number might be bigger or smaller. So that's for the UK, that that is pretty rare. We've talked a little bit in the past uh, about the registry that you've started. I can't wait for people to hear as much as possible on this because one, it's fantastic. And I applaud all the work that you've put into this. So exciting. It's something that so many folks would love to do for their organization. So I'd love to hear a bit about that sort of what the genesis of it was, how it got started, and sort of where you've come sort of in the midterm and where you are with it now. The organisation has been around for 11 years and I think almost all of those 11 years this has been a dream to have the registry so I definitely feel for you know the other organisations that have that same dream and it only came to actual fruition in January this year so actually having it is really new to us and the journey to it has been um, yeah a long one. We, we learned really early on from working with the Italian Poland Syndrome Association that the register needed to be our foundation building block to improving things for Poland Syndrome. And that statistic we just talked about is a really good case in point because that's so varied. What is the true answer? What's the real data behind that? That's what we want to know. And even more importantly, we want to know how many of those people are female, how many are male, what side of the body they're affected on. 
These are questions that come up all the time for people with Poland syndrome and their families and questions that we just simply don't have the answer to without starting with a register. So for all of those 11 years, we were always talking about working towards a register with our community, talking about the importance of gathering data. And it was only about two years ago now that really we got our first bit of funding to start working on the register. Prior to that, we were fully voluntary um, organisation. Um, so that piece of national lottery funding that we got gave us the um, time and resources to dedicate to building the register properly. I think the key things to start off with are really just like that early engagement with your community um, and getting them involved and consulting them. So the fact that we were talking about it all of those 11 years and we wanted to do it and we knew it was coming was turned out to be really good early engagement to the register. So two years ago, we got that funding. We started planning and researching at that point and working towards finding a registry provider engaging with all sorts of different stakeholders around what data already exists in the UK, um, you know, what data exists around the world. Do we need to start from zero or are we incorporating data? So a lot of time around the research there as well, which was really interesting because one of the key stakeholders, and if you're in England, I definitely recommend doing this, is Public Health England um, because they're the, the data body for the UK. and. I think they might have actually changed to NHS Digital, that's why I'm hesitating now, but um, at that time they were Public Health England. Um, so that was one of the key stakeholders and key changes that helped with our planning because after speaking to them, it became apparent that there is no data in the UK for Poland syndrome, there is no code for it. Again, really common in rare diseases, but it was the first time we, we truly knew that for a fact. So that was a real sort of point of understanding in our journey of like right it doesn't exist in this country at all so we need to be the starting point for it we will be the organization that will bring this data to the likes of public health england and nhs because in the thousands of rare diseases out there those organizations aren't looking at poland syndrome and don't see enough prevalence in it to look at it so Working with those types of stakeholders for me just gave me a really good boost in that research and planning of like, right, we're on the right track here, we need to do this. So then the other stakeholders from there that we engaged with were doctors and surgeons that had helped us over the years and had some good interest and knowledge in Poland syndrome, talking to them about what we wanted to do with the register and bringing the data together. When these conversations occur, they're so exciting and so many questions pop into my head. And I'm sure that that's true for anyone listening. They're probably thinking, that's a lot of great information, but really, what was your step one? So was it finding the provider? Was it collating the data that you had and taking that to someone like a, a provider? Was it that sort of collaborative relationship with a research partner and then taking that to other parties? Like, where would you say the first best step was and sort of what was the logical progression from there? The first best step really is get a plan on a page and really identify what you want this register for, what questions you're trying to answer, what your end goal is. And if you can plan um, on, re on a budget and what you're going to research. And then from there, yeah, engage with the stakeholders that you think are going to be interested in this or will contribute it so you can understand what the data landscape is for your disease if you don't already 
understand it but a plan on a page is a really good starting point and you can get help with that as well you can engage with the likes of beacon for rare diseases and genetic alliance in the uk to get support around that to meet with you know your peers that have already been on this journey or even might be at the same journey so you can lean on them during this as well because this has been done many thousands of times in rare diseases so there are a lot of people out there that can help you. I used to find that really frustrating. It's like, why can't there just be one big registry that we can all use for all diseases? Because it's so hard to think about reinventing the wheel on such a small budget with such little resources. But there are a lot of help and support organisations out there that will guide you and take you on that journey. And the overriding thing is that you're the voice for that disease you're the person who's going to speak up for your illness and for your people. And that's the key driver, really, to keep you going through all those challenges that you find along the way. That's a great statement because that's very true. Um, Whatever community you're coming from, whatever the condition is, I think we all feel in the beginning a certain sense of being overwhelmed. Do we have enough data? Do we have resources? Like, how do we get started? We talked before about funding And I recall when I was working with HESA in the United States, you know, I said we would be lucky to get $500, you know, in donations a year. It is so difficult. And it takes resources to build a t-shirt campaign. That's a lot of people do that. Or to get like a GoFundMe going or to get donations through Amazon Smile, things like that. So... You know, in terms of funding sources before any grants and then since grants, what were sort of your go-tos in terms of raising some funds? And then in terms of how you've handled grants, what was that process like for you? Prior to grants, it was always community fundraising. So we started out with a secondhand book and toy sale of things that had been donated to us. And, you know, pretty much anyone could go and do something like that in their local market anywhere. Um, you know, local councils will often give you a market stall for free. Everyone's got books they want to get rid of. Um, you know, you can start as simple as that. I think we did about four of those in our first year and there was probably raised about £200 in each one. But that's a huge amount to raise. You know, that was enough to get the website off the ground and start making leaflets and reaching out to people. Um, so, yeah, start small with that community fundraising. Start talking to as many people as you can about the condition so you can start raising that awareness about the condition and what you're trying to do to help improve the lives of people with that condition. Um, And from that grew, you know, people that wanted to run a race for us and eventually families that we'd helped would raise money for us. And that community fundraising was really the thing that kept us going. And it's not just the funds to do the things that you need to do to help the community. It's the people around that that start believing in the work that you're doing and want you to be there for the long term and want to keep helping. And they start to gather around and help you fundraise along the way and volunteer and things like that. So just be brave and just take a step when it comes to doing your first grant writing, you know, application. Don't do it yourself. Lean on your local voluntary organisation. Lean on the rare disease organisations use experience of other people because there is a formula to these things it's you know it's extremely difficult to get into but there is a lot of knowledge in in local voluntary organizations and other charities even 
our national lottery bid was written by um, a community organiser in another charity and that's how we could afford to get someone to help us write our first grant and we still use them to this day so yeah lean on the resources around you local voluntary organizations and the rare disease organizations as well that's really good advice and i think sometimes you know a lot of things feel intuitive to us but at the same time when we hear someone who has succeeded in this area it really helps to hear that advice again coming from someone and say and you can say to yourself right Okay, PIP UK could do it. We can do it. Here are some really easy steps we can take to gain in confidence. Because I know sometimes for those first little market stalls or those first raffles or whatever it ends up being, people can feel like, I'm not organized for this. I don't have the energy for this. I don't have time for this. I don't have volunteers for this. How do I do it? Sometimes the first step is taking the first step and, and do it. You're saying, I can do this. I can, I can do this. Um, One of the other things we've talked about and you touched on was getting people interested and involved in the story and reaching out to families. With other organizations, it can sometimes be difficult when starting to really hit on the best way to start to raise the awareness, start to get people who are really sympathetic, whether they are families themselves or, you know, they could be a grandparent or a colleague of someone who has the condition. So it's not formulaic. There's no formula to how do you get people interested, but what were some of the early sort of indicators for you that people were interested or things that you could build on to increase engagement with sort of the outside world? In those early days, it was reaching out to the local newspapers, even just being on that market stall where we were selling the books to raise money and creating our own little leaflet and being to be able to have those conversations with the general public about the condition. I always went into those conversations with the mindset of if one more person knows about Poland syndrome today, then this is a really good day because that's one more person than yesterday. And that little ripple effect of one more person And I can really picture that first conversation that I had with someone in the general public about it in that way and how nerve-wracking and difficult it was because you've got all that, will they care about it? Will they understand? Will it matter to them? People are good. People want to hear about what you're doing, why you're doing it. They're, They're generally interested. And if you just approach speaking to as many people as you can about the condition you know the fact that it's rare if you are talking to one person each time you go out and make an action there's one more person that person will likely speak to another person and they'll tell another person you've got to believe in that ripple effect of of getting it out there and you know that ripple effect is also your voice each time you talk to someone about the condition the voice is growing louder for your condition and I do I got a really strong health belief that that really makes such a difference it's my son that has pollen syndrome so telling people about your personal connection to this disease really is a real good opener of you know why you care so much about it and why you would like other people to know about it as well as well as a hook into if there's someone in the public eye that you can refer to is always a good one and for us and still is a little bit now, but less so, you know, you might have known Jeremy Beadle because he had a small hand and he had Poland syndrome. 
So if you can hook in to make it relatable to people as well, that really, really helps. That's a really good point. I think a lot of uh, organizations kind of think about that too. Like, is there someone in the public eye who has this condition? I know with uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos. And when I was first diagnosed, I actually learned about EDS through Dazzle for Rare, which is kind of funny because at the time I was an undiagnosed person and I had already been doing rare disease advocacy work and working with nonprofits for probably five years, four or five years undiagnosed before I started Dazzle for Rare. You just touched on the reason that I started Dazzle for Rare is because we are each other's networks. So when you say that you talk to that first person at a market stall and now they've gone away with awareness and then they have everyone that they know. So let's say they know a thousand people. At some point, it will come up in a conversation and they are likely to tell another person. And then that person has an entire social network. It's the exact same thing with Dazzle Ferrer. Each of us has a social network. So if I share your message with my, let's say, 500 family and friends on Facebook, there's always that chance that someone sees that and, and something registers, you know. So we, I think a lot of times people focus on rare disease being rare. But what all of us continuously say is that collectively we are not rare at all. There are over 300 million, I think it's 300 million people worldwide that have a rare condition. And in the UK, one in 17 people will be affected at some point. So there's so many of those dynamics. The personal connection, like your own story as a parent, or being able to point to someone in the media and say, this person has this condition and you know they've been able to achieve wonderful things and that's great and we're very grateful. There's so much that we as human beings can do to bring others with us on this journey and to keep increasing that awareness. So all of that, it sounds funny to say, it sounds inspiring because I think we've all had a conversation at some point where someone says, oh my gosh, that's so inspiring or you're so inspiring. And sometimes it's like, okay, thank you. That's very kind of you. You know, but it feels like you hear it sometimes in the wrong situation. But this is the situation where it is incredibly inspiring. It's inspiring to know that if any of us reach one person, that's someone else who now has an awareness. And that person can tell their friend and they can post that on Facebook or Twitter. And it just grows until I hope one day people hear rare disease and think of 300 million souls, not just... Not just one condition, not just one thing that they don't understand. Souls around the world who are all wanting the same sort of quality of life, the access to things in society, to having an approved treatment. Now, when we talk about approved treatments, I think people often focus on sort of the unseen. So maybe if we talk about like a neurological con condition, they think about uh, treatments for the brain. But with Poland syndrome, we're not talking about medicinal treatments necessarily. I mean, what are some of the treatments that actually go hand in hand with Poland syndrome? The main treatments for Poland syndrome are surgical treatments. So if you are born with um, an underdeveloped hand, for instance, you might have some smaller fingers, you might have some missing bones, you might have some of your fingers that are joined together. Um, and hand surgery is really well established. They've got some really great techniques and what they do when children are born like that, like my son was, is they work with you to um, make sure that you get an, as much function in the hand as you possibly can. Um, so commonly the webbing between fingers syndactyly, um, that is often released. So the pincer grip is available within the hand and there's more 
span of the hand as well to, to make that grip a little bit larger and some of the fingers can be worked on as well so for, for hands mainly surgery um, and for chest as well a myriad of surgeries available for the chest really just to achieve a symmetry within the chest and in some cases to protect it if there's very little breastbone um, or tissue or anything around there as well and that can range from transfers of fat from the body, muscle transfers and um, implants as well to achieve symmetry in the chest. The treatment is, is really difficult, again common with rare diseases. There is no treatment plan, there are no guidelines in the AHS for any doctors to refer to when they get someone with Poland syndrome. So it's a real mixed bag of, of how it's treated but primarily it is surgery. What we would like to see there and what we are working towards is how can people have some physio to help with the pain associated to the condition? How can they, um, you know, work on it with sports and rehabilitation? Things like this are what we would like to see for it. I think we talked last time about how, um, you know, there's Paralympians with Poland syndrome who receive this gold standard of care around how their body works, the biomechanics of their body and how it works for the compensation of the missing muscle and how they can adjust what activities they do based on that. I really hope that we can have that kind of assessment for people with Poland syndrome one day so we can help them work with their body in a way that will not cause them as much pain as they're having to live with now, will not cause the other side of the body to deteriorate faster because it's doing the heavy load of the parts that are missing. And there's so much work to do there and you know hopefully the register is going to be the answer to that in the long term. We talked earlier, didn't we, about where are we with it now and where do we want to be with it. So it was launched in January um, and it was really successful in its engagement, you know, the community got completely behind it and engaged so so well with it and I think we're at something like 170 active participants within it at the moment and we got to 100 within the first couple of weeks so we were really really pleased with the early engagement and it's just ticking along nicely with picking up engagement along the way now which is fantastic our, our community really stepped up they championed it they took part in videos and everything for it so we couldn't be more grateful for the, the success with that really and off the back of that success, we've been able to create our first poster for one of the rare disease um, conferences for the ECRD conference. So that was an exciting step that we took from it. We've got a case study on how to build a registry that everyone should check out as well. Um, and we'll share the links to that, I'm sure, Kimberly. And we're just about to publish a journal article on it as well. Again, how to build a, a successful patient registry. And we're working on those connections with medics for research for the next steps, basically. So I think it's still going to be difficult to get research off the ground. You know, like you said earlier, there's no medicines that people are going to be interested in making for Poland syndrome. It's difficult to find people in the research space interested in it. But since the launch of the register, we have had more interest and more conversations with healthcare professionals than ever before because we now have this resource that we know we can draw on and that they can get involved in in the future. Yeah, data is a is a big one for all of us because I think when you talk about the level of interest that clinicians or pharmaceutical companies have in something, I think from a practical point of view, they're looking at how much data is accessible in this condition. 
how many people are affected that we know of? Um, what are some of the current treatment protocols, if there are any? So there's so many boxes that I think they're trying to tick to decide. Do we want to spend time and money focusing on this condition group or, you know, do we feel like we have more data elsewhere? And it feels, you know, it feels cold and cruel, I think, to many of us, you know, because I think of conditions like Wager syndrome. That is something that is congenital. It affects children. So so they're born with Wager syndrome and can experience blindness from birth um, and are very had a very have a very high likelihood of kidney cancer and a lot of children will have surgeries or will have had cancer treatment by the age of probably four or five and i think there's somewhere the last statistic i saw and i could be wrong so if anyone out there is listening please correct me but i believe there was about 174 families that were sort of listed as experiencing this condition and so when you look at a condition that has less than maybe 200 people in the world that are currently documented um, you think that's such an uphill battle but you know clearly there need to be treatments or early screening or different things that can be done to help groups like the Wager syndrome community and so many others so it is it's one of those things where having data is incredibly important so having the registry is really like that one of those most important steps and you know you were talking about going to conferences you mentioned the poster uh, the white paper, those are a lot of amazing things that can get you amazing traction when it comes to some of the stakeholders you mentioned, getting in front of certain organizations, certain potential therapeutic uh, providers, you know, or uh, pharmaceutical companies. So I, if I could do anything, I would really encourage listeners to not feel overwhelmed by everything they've just heard and realize that, you know, this for you, it's been a long journey. It's been 11 years since starting the organization. And there's a lot that goes into that, the the initial startup and each step. And so I think people look at the success of other groups and think, how did they do that? It feels like overnight. And it isn't. It isn't something that just comes to you, you know, by the grace of God. I can, I can tell that, that there's probably feelings bubbling up for that because people think, I can't do this. But, but you're proof that you can. So any feelings you have about that, please share because it, it's something that so many people are, probably, are going to be thinking about right now. Yeah. For me, it's about belief in, in the cause and what you're doing um, because, yeah, it is really hard. It really is. And, you know, you will get a lot of no responses and, um, and no's to a lot of your requests, but you will get a lot of yeses. You know, the world is incredibly generous and open to charities and it still to this day amazes me how generous people are when it comes to charities and good causes. Just take the next step with things, break it down really slowly and, and take the next step. Um, I didn't mention about the clinics that we've got running now. So the children's clinics at Birmingham Children's Hospital, they came out of a conversation with surgeons about planning the register and asking them about, about what data they held. They didn't hold any data. I asked them to start holding it because the register was coming. And then six months later, this same group of surgeons said, there's more people than we thought. We're going to start a clinic. Let's just start and see what happens. Um, so that was literally from a couple of conversations and building relationships with this group of surgeons um, and planning and, you know, having the vision and belief that this could happen because that has been on our sort of wish list for such a long time to have a dedicated clinic. And then all of a sudden, because medics are seeing that the data is going to be coming, there's more people than they realize, then, 
the interest can grow and build. Um, so just plan and have that belief and that vision to make a difference for your disease and your community. Um, and you just never know what's around the corner when you keep chipping away little by little. That is so true. So I think hearing that, the things that I come away with are hope. You know, don't lose hope. Know that your cause is true and that your motivation is the key factor. And then also hearing that drawing on that hope and, and putting away that your any fears that you may have or any doubts that you may have in what you're doing, because again, your cause is true. You have a good reason to be to be advocating for your son and for other patients and other people all throughout the UK. And so it's a good cause. We have to all have hope in our communities, have a sense of belief that no matter, you know, a lot of things start out with just one person, you know, a lot of people wake up and realize, I didn't know this was going to happen, or I didn't realize I'd be impacted by something. But I want to make a difference. And so it starts with that first seed of hope and belief and take and just having the the fragile courage sometimes of putting yourself out there and being vulnerable to hearing people say, no, we're not donating. No, we're not interested. No, we don't want to sponsor. No, we don't want to have a conversation. So you do get no's, but with that hope in the back of your mind, always saying your cause is true. Don't give up. Keep going. And then you have that conversation like you just mentioned. And so much can flow from that. So really, I hope what he, what people hear is that takeaway message that hope and having a bit of faith in yourself is super important to starting anything, and especially in rare disease and especially in small organizations. It's just that process of never giving up hope and knowing that the more people you talk to, the more people you reach out to at that stall, <laughs> you know, selling used books or at a conference, you're continuing to build on that network. So that's that just it gives me chills. I'm very emotional, as you probably recall. I get super excited about good news. So I love this conversation. I love hearing what has has grown from the seed that you planted 11 years ago and where you are today. And I think of your logo with the apple and the little pips, which is, I only figured that out yesterday. <laughs> so I'm, in, I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't understand the apple and the pip for the longest time. But then I realized, oh, the pip is the apple. Okay, that makes sense. But also it's that first seed that has grown in orchard. So, you know, thinking of it that way makes me a little emotional. I'm, I'm really happy for you. And I'm, I'm really happy for your community and also what you're able to give us in your wisdom. So thank you so much for that, Sam. Oh, no, <laughs> thank, thank you so you. much. Okay. Thank you. It's a privilege. Oh, it's a privilege. And you're right. Like that phrase always comes to mind, even now, you know, from little seeds, is it great acorns grow? It's so, so true. And you know that we're still trying to achieve so much we've still got such a long way to go and um, to improve things wholeheartedly forever for Poland syndrome but every single day we take a step in the right direction for that and everyone can in their own groups as well whether that would be writing that email that day to the person that needs help or joining up to your local voluntary sector that day reaching out for some more support um, trying to contact your local newspaper, any tiny small step, even just writing something up for another day, you can always take that step. And yeah, it does take courage and it is hard and you've got to be so resilient along the way. 
but there is a lot of support out there to help you build that. I've had loads and loads of support with, you know, my mental health, my well-being, the support for all the things we're going to achieve and have achieved and lean on people that will support you with each and every step of your journey. I think that's the best place to end that today is that message of hope, that message of courage, and that message of sometimes it just takes a single action. So hopefully that that's the overarching message that people can take away. I'm very glad to have had you as my first guest today. I'm very excited for everything that you're doing and the continued growth. I'm looking forward to watching your orchard grow larger (laughs) because it's bearing a lot of fruit for patients with Poland syndrome here. So thank you, Sam, so much for joining us today. And I hope that you will come back and touch on some of these other topics that we just grazed because I think they're important to a lot of us. So hopefully you will come back. Of course. Thank you so, so much for having me. I would be happy to come back anytime. We will have links to your social media where they can find uh, Poland Syndrome UK on, uh, you're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, Twitter. Am I missing anything? Uh, TikTok. Only just. (laughs) Only just. So we'll make sure that we get all those links out to everybody and we'll share those on social media as well. And then links to the white paper and any other information that you want to share, we will include that as well. So thank you again for staying with me today and having this conversation. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Signalize, a Dazzle Ferrer podcast. To stay up to date on the podcast and Dazzle Ferrer, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, rare, R-A-R-E. And finally, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms.